0: All right. So we are um, transitioning in our study through the Old Testament away from uh, Solomon and the United Kingdom, and we're going into a divided kingdom. So let me just prepare you. I, I, I would assume that most of you have you know, read through the Old Testament or get a general picture of, of what the Old Testament is like and the overall general story of the people of Israel. But let me just prepare you for what's about to happen in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and how our study is going to change just slightly. We have a lot more things that we're going to have to start keeping track of. So before we were looking at one kingdom one, pretty much one king on the throne and all the things that went on with his kingdom on the throne. Very quickly in the next few weeks, we're going to have two kings and two thrones to keep track of. Sometimes the names of the two kings are very similar. And so they're very easy to get twisted. We're also going to have a number of prophets that we're going to be keeping track of. And in In pretty short order, the story is going to transition from keeping track of the kingdom of Israel to keeping track of what the prophets are doing in Israel and back and forth between the prophets and kings and prophets and kings and then the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Not only that, but then we're going to now because Israel is transitioning out of being the dominant force in the region, now we're also going to have to start keeping track of all the other nations that are rising up in the immediate vicinity. What are they doing? Who are their kings? What, why are they doing what they're doing? What, why, why are they taking the course of action that they're taking? So we're going to have to keep track of those things as well. So the timeline of First of and Second Kings is about to get very busy. And so I just want to prepare you for that. And tonight should be relatively easy, but we're going to take some small steps in that direction to help kind of prepare us for what is taking place. Now you'll remember that just to review last week what we talked about is that that God had appeared to Solomon a second time. You know, the first time he asked him, "What do you want?" and do you want, you know, riches or what what do you want? And Solomon asked for wisdom. Well, now God appears to him the second time and he reaffirms this covenant that he's made with David and he he makes it again with Solomon. He reaffirms it with Solomon. However, we know that that covenant that he makes with him has there are conditions to it and solomon has to be proven faithful he he needs to continue to walk in the ways of david his father and if he does if he is faithful and the nation of israel is faithful then the kingship and the the temple will continue but if they he transgresses covenant faithfulness with the lord then the lord is going to end that kingship and the and that line really quickly. Quickly, And we're going to see how he kind of does that in, in uh, a little bit this week, but more next week. And also the temple is going to be thrown into question because the temple is contingent, as we talked about in previous weeks, the temple is contingent on God's presence being there. If he's not there, it's just a brick and mortar building. It might as well be a blockbuster. It isn't, It really is not important whatsoever if God's presence isn't there in the temple. Um, I don't know why I said it might be well, like a blockbuster, but you get the idea. It's uh, pointless. Uh, there's, there's. <laughs> that, that was the point I was trying to make. Um, and so we saw also that Solomon is a really complex figure because on the one what hand, what what was that? Oh, I'm hearing somebody else's microphone. Sorry, I thought somebody was trying to ask a question. Um, so you you can. Um, you can see that although Solomon loves Yahweh and really um, desires, in some capacity, to walk in the ways his his father did, at the same time he also loves foreign women, and he begins marrying foreign women like crazy, and he he can't he just he can't stop that, and that's clearly against uh, God's law that he laid out since Deuteronomy, and so he marries these pagan women. And um, starting with Naamah the Ammonite, the Ammonite, and even before, which was a year before he came, became king. And Rehoboam is going to be the product of that marriage. And then he marries the daughter of Pharaoh, and he continues to marry tons of, of women from foreign lands. Which, as we know and we're warned about in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses warns the nation of Israel, that's going to turn your heart away from the Lord. And sure enough, the author of Kings makes it very clear that... That there is a connection between his marriages, his illicit marriages, and the illicit worship that he engaged in. So he wasn't supposed to do that, and he did. And so he points out that these, the loves that that Solomon had, the deep, the deeper love that he had, was not for the Lord, but for yeah, you know, uh, pagan, pagan wives, and he couldn't turn them down. And so because of that. The nation of Israel, the kingdom, gets torn asunder, and um, and it, it's going to crumble beneath Solomon. And so we're gonna uh, we're gonna watch that collapse tonight. So, um, so Solomon's heart is turned from God to the gods of the nations. And so, what we see in the book of First Kings is that Solomon builds what amounts to a syncretistic religion. Inside of Israel, so it's no longer a religion that is devoted to the Lord, but now a syncretistic religion. What is that? That's like a religion that is combined of multiple parts of a bunch of different things. Um, if you if you talk to many people that don't that aren't Christians in um, in America today. Much of what they're going to describe to you is that they that they follow is a syncretistic religion. Um, it's a hodgepodge. You're going to hear bits and pieces of Christianity in there, uh, and you'll hear stuff mixed with Hinduism, some Buddhism in there. Um, th- when you hear people say, you know, uh, I think God, I, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, uh, I think he you know, mostly wants us to be happy and we try to do what's right and things like that. They're there. It's a syncretism of religions. It's that's not Christianity, but it, it's mixing Christianity with, you know, things like Buddhism and, and Hinduism and um and some other things like that. So that's, that's essentially what, what we've got now in Israel is that there's bits and pieces of Yahwistic Judaism that 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 Solomon is, is kind of a part of and represents as its nation's head. But then there's the religions of his wives where he builds chapels for his wives. And he he obviously allows them to worship their native deities. And he seems to associate himself with those native deities and the worship of those native deities. Look at 1 Kings eleven four to 8 for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from, uh, from uh, his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and the Milcom, uh, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built high places at Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So he participated in this or or at least participated in the building of these temples and creates this sort of just melting pot of religions there in inside Israel. And they and the author is clear that his wives turned his heart away from God so it seems to be pretty evident that he's participating in this as well. And so the result, obviously, was just as God had warned. The kingdom is taken away from Solomon, and, um, but at the same time, for Solomon's father's sake, for David's sake, uh, it's not totally taken away from Solomon. So this is remember God made a covenant with David and He promised to be true to that covenant. However, there were conditions around how that covenant would be shaped or how the what the outcome would be. So He is dedicated to David, and as we'll see. Jesus comes from the line of David. He's the true King and things like that. And so He's true to the the overall picture that David is that Jesus is going to come from the line of David. But at the same time, He's not He's not altogether promising how that kingdom is going to flourish if David, uh, you know, turns his heart away from, uh, uh, God, or if one of David's sons does. So only the tribe of Judah is going to be retained by the Davidic line. So let's look at first Kings 11, nine to 13. It says this, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now there's a lot of nuance to that that we're going to talk about in just a second, but I want you to see how God does this. This is, to me, is really, really fascinating. Remember back when David was conquering the land. Remember he moves in and he he becomes king and he starts these military campaigns. He starts military campaigns. He kind of owns the south already. He starts campaigns to the east where Edom is and the Ammonites and all of them to the east And then he goes up to the north where Damascus is and several places up there in Aram. And he starts conquering, he starts spreading the land beyond the borders that we're accustomed to, knowing as the land of Israel he and 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 I said back then a few weeks ago, or this was I guess a few months ago, that David is is spreading the, the kingdom of God out, right? And so and and that he does. But when the kingdom is taken away from Solomon, and when uh, when, when he, as after he is disobeyed. What we see is that all of those pieces where David had expanded its borders all of a sudden begin dropping off. So we first get, uh, I think I'm out of my box here. Hold on one second. There we go. Um, so God raises up these adversaries against Solomon because his heart had turned. So first we get this story about Hadad the Edomite. And he is a prince um, that is uh, in obviously from Edom, and under David he was exiled into Egypt, and he actually had married um, the Pharaoh's wife wife's sister was given Pharaoh gave him as a wife I believe his uh, sister in law essentially. And so what that tells you is that Hadad the Edomite was very close to, uh, to Egypt and had, had some Egyptian connection and had uh, probably more of an Egyptian connection and a better Egyptian connection than even Solomon had, all right? So Hadad the Edomite, he was exiled to Egypt under David. But when Solomon's kingdom begins to falter, He runs away from Egypt and goes back home to Edom and begins to take control back from Solomon of Edom, which is, remember, if you'll remember Edom, if you can think of where the Red Sea is, it's just to the east of the Red Sea, So, uh, and maybe a little bit to the south. So you've got the east starting to drop off under Hadad the Edomite. Then uh, we have uh, Rezon took over Damascus. And Damascus is up to the north uh, of the borders of Israel. So just to the north of Israel. And so uh, uh, Rezon took over there. And then what do we have? But in the right in the middle of Israel, you have Jeroboam who takes over the central part of the nation and takes over the 10 of the northern tribes. So 10 of the northern tribes are going to be given over to Jeroboam, and we're going to take a closer look at that in just a second. First, First Kings uh, eleven fourteen to twenty two will kind of paint this picture for us from Scripture. He says, "And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a loyal. He was the of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom." For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until they had cut off every male in Edom. Murdered tons of them. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants. Hadad still being a little child. They set set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land? So he found favor with uh, with Egypt. Here's what you need to see, though, in in all of this. If if you're a powerful nation and you begin conquering other nations, what you're basically doing is creating enemies of the next generation, right? I mean, we know that even today. So you you go into a nation and you, let well, say say, put it in modern terms, you bomb a nation. There's lots of people that are in the younger generation, the next generation, that don't uh, necessarily think of your nation as merciful, right? And so, which, you know, in David's case or in Solomon's case is fine so long as Solomon maintains a strong grip on the world. And as long as Solomon maintains his powerful control and as long as God continues to bless The nation of Israel, I suppose it's not going to be that big of a deal because they can immediately squash any threats that might rise. But what happens is as soon as the kingdom begins to falter, all of these enemies that you've created all come home to roost. And so essentially what's happening now is that as David has sort of, I guess, more or less created enemies by conquering these lands outside of the nation of Israel. All of the enemies of David and of Solomon are now coming home to roost as Solomon grows weaker as he gets older. And so God gives, uh, raises up the adversary, Hadad the Edomite. Then he raises up Razon of, uh, to take over Damascus. And then he's going to give Jeroboam control over the northern tribes. So uh, Jeroboam is encouraged by a prophet by the name of Ahijah of Shiloh. Who met him one day in a field, comes upon him in a field, and basically uh, Ahijah has a new garment. He takes off and he tears it into 12 strips. And he's like, uh, he's like, here you go, uh, Jeroboam. Why don't you go ahead and take, uh, take 10 of these strips? And so Jeroboam takes 10 of the strips and he says, all right, those 10 are your tribes. You're going to get 10 tribes. It's super weird, I know, but get used to weird because the prophets are going to do some weird things and they're told to do some weird things by the Lord, but he tears his garment and it's supposed to be this sort of visual picture, this illustration of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the fact that Jeroboam is going to be given control over 10 of these. So 10 of these returned to Jeroboam and, uh, and it indicated that he's going to rule the 10 tribes, but two of the strips, the prophet held back, and he gave those to Rehoboam. So we already have our first difficult uh, king balance here. Northern kingdom, Jeroboam. Southern kingdom, Rehoboam, all right? So Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. These two kingdoms, obviously one piece of one strip of the garment is going to represent Judah because that's obviously where the Southern kingdom is housed. And that includes Jerusalem. Jerusalem was originally a part of Benjamin, but then got incorporated into Judah at some point in Israel's history. And most of the time when you say Judah, you mean Benjamin too. So the second strip is probably representative of Benjamin that we're not told specifically, but it's probably Benjamin that it represents. And then, Levi, this is where you get a third a third tribe, all right? So there's only two strips, but here's a third tribe. Levi also is going to side with the south. They're actually going to be kicked out of the north. The north is going to develop its own pagan religion, and uh, and they're going to be kicked out of the north. And so Levi is going to serve the temple in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. So it's two tribes. But it's actually three, and it's kind of four, and I'll show you that in just a second to make things really confusing. I know, Shannon is like, what in the world? You got to slow down. Trust me, we're going to go through this. Okay, so let's look at um, let's look at 1 Kings 11, uh, 41 um, to 43, I think. Um, no, let's look at uh, 26 to 39. First uh, 1 Kings 1126 26 to 39. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the e- an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother was Zeruah, Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment, that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant. I know what you're thinking. There's two pieces left, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god, of, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my, in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David, his father, did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it, to you, uh, ten tri- give it to you, 10 tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over the, uh, all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. When you hear Israel from here on out, mostly, unless notified otherwise, think of the northern kingdom. All right. Judah will be called out typically as the southern kingdom. And if you uh, if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes and keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant did, I will be with you and build you a sure house as I built David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. OK, so there's a promise of judgment, but it's not forever. And so Solomon ends his reign. Solomon dies and his kingdom is crumbling beneath him as he does. Okay. Now let's look at some maps. Okay. Let's take a break here and let's just think about this for just a second. Okay. This is the kingdom when it is united. All right. So these are the, uh, for more, m- m- for, uh, for all intents and purposes, these are the 12 tribal allotments. All right. So most of them aren't going to matter for our purposes today, except for Judah. Look at Judah. You see Judah is then the kind of the, what is that salmon colored? And then Benjamin, which is in sort of the earthy tone. They're just above Judah. All right. Now, um, So you'll also notice inside Judah, there is also a tribe inside Judah, Simeon. Okay, those are the three that I want you to pay pretty close attention to for our purposes uh, tonight. So you got those three tribes: you have Judah, you have Simeon, you have Benjamin, and uh, and then you have the United Kingdom or the divided kingdom: Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Judah incorporates Benjamin, right? And this purple area over here on the left is, are the Philistines. So they're, they're nobody. So ignore them and ignore that orange line that goes down the, down the little pathway there that goes down to Egypt. Just ignore that altogether. Um, So basically we've got a divided kingdom, Judah in the South, Israel in the North. And there's two tribes that are in the South, Judah And Benjamin, Judah incorporates Benjamin into the southern kingdom, okay? But you notice who's missing? Go back here. What happened to Simeon? Simeon just sort of disappears in the whole thing. Okay, I so confession, I had to reach out to a professor friend of mine (laughs) and, and ask him a few questions about this because I wasn't entirely sure. First of all, I wasn't sure about how Levi served in the divided kingdom. Uh, I know that it, Levi, it, you, I have the Second Chronicles passage listed there, and you can see in Second Chronicles 11, 13 to 17, the priests and the Levites who were all in Israel presented themselves uh, to him from all the places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because... Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. So, and he appointed his own priests for the high places. So they they go to worship other gods in the North and they kick Levi out altogether. So Levi's coming down. But do you remember? So you'll notice on this, on this map here, Levi is not given a tribal allotment. He doesn't have an allotment because the Lord is his portion. And so Levi doesn't get a piece in the land. So when In Israel, when we start talking about uh, 12 sons, 12 tribes, we mean two, there's really two different groups of people. So if you're talking about 12 allotments, talking about the division of land, you're not including Levi in that. You're not including Joseph in that. Um, And then if you talk about 12 sons of Israel, you're, not including Manasseh and Ephraim in that and you are including Levi and Joseph because they were actual sons of of Israel but they didn't get divisions of the land you remember right here right up here you have East and West Manasseh those are sons of Joseph they get a they get a tribal allotment Ephraim is also a son of Joseph he gets a tribal allotment but Levi does not get a tribal allotment and also Joseph so basically you're back to 12 tribal allotments. Does that that's is that making at least somewhat sense? You've got so the 12 tribal allotments. But then if you're talking about the 12 sons of Israel, you you're 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 talking about his literal sons, the literal 12 sons that he had, which is a slightly different group. And then in the New Testament, including the book of Revelation, we're going to get a theological list of sons, which is a a different list altogether. So it can get really kind of confusing, but one thing that is clear is that Judah incorporates Benjamin. We know that for sure. It seems as though Simeon also is incorporated into Judah. They just get lost into the mix. We have no real data as to what happened to to Simeon. He just sort of disappears. And so uh, how do we get 12 tribes out of this? Well, if you look at the list, this is kind of how it somewhat how it breaks down. Um, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi are more or less, we can think of them as the south. Really, an Israelite is going to think of that as Judah and Benjamin are in the south, and Levi serves in the temple. Um, He doesn't have a piece of land, so he serves in the temple. Uh, The northern tribes would technically be Reuben, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Um, But obviously, Simeon, something happens to him, and we have no idea. And so uh, that was the... The thing that my professor friend posed to me when I reached out to him is he was like, "Yeah, also, what happened to Simeon? Uh, you know, so that it's a confusing piece. We're not entirely sure. And there's, I mean, potential Simeon could have left and gone up north, which I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, it's possible. There's, there's probably lots of different ways that it could be solved, but more or less, this is kind of how it, how it sort of breaks down, and and we don't really know. Um, uh, other than that." The, the kind of the kind of breakdown. But the point is, Levi, uh, Judah and Benjamin are in the south. Those are the two southern tribes. Uh, Levi is serving in the temple and then the 10 northern tribes, technically, who uh, Jeroboam is reigning over are listed here in the north. Um, and so where Simeon's tribal allotment went, we don't really know. And, and I don't know that we'll get an answer to that. Uh, at least on this side of glory. So, uh, questions on that? Are there any questions on that? Tons. <laughs> Tons. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, think of them. Think of some good ones and and ask them in a little bit. As you can kind of put them, put words to it if you can.
1: Or well, I, just quickly. I mean, if, if it doesn't make sense why Simeon's in the northern list, I mean, it just yeah. I'm just um, dumb. okay, but I just take I, it in faith, huh?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's there's probably a number of different ways that we could parse this. Um, one solution, maybe, and I, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I would kind of want to have my professor friend on my shoulder to talk about this. But uh, one solution, maybe, is that technically Levi was part of the no- northern tribes and he got kicked out. Um, so it, it's possible that, that Simeon was incorporated into Judah and Benjamin also became part of the Southern, th- those were the two, sh- two strips of cloth as it were, Judah and Benjamin and Simeon kind of got lumped in with Judah and Levi was part of the Northern tribes and Levi got kicked out.
1: That would that would make him that would put him in the Southern tribe, not the Northern tribe.
0: That would put if- Simeon in the Southern tribe. Is that what you mean?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. That's what I mean is, is that potentially the, the two, the two strips include Judah Simeon as one tribe because they're all, they share the same land essentially. Right. And Benjamin as the second tribe, Levi being part of the North, but then gets kicked out and goes mm-hmm. to the Southern tribe to serve in the temple. Potentially that's how you solve the initial 10 strips and two strips. Maybe, but, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just one of those kind of enigmas in scripture that you're like, I'm not sure. But obviously they worked it out and obviously they understood that this was how it's going to be divided. And it seems that not many people had a problem with it back then. So um, there's probably something it, it's definitely a, a product of our own lack of knowledge than it is anything else, you know, just or lack of information. So uh, that being the case, that's what we've got as is a, a divided kingdom. Blake, go ahead.
1: Well, and I think that it's um, when we when we look historically, so many times the maps are not nearly as clean as we as we represent them as being. Yeah. And so you think about these various kingdoms all the way into the eighteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. You have kingdoms that have territories separating their own territories. You know, so that you know you can have. It'd be weird, but it's completely within reason. for Simeon to be under the the sway of Israel and still be separated from Israel in that sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like Guam or something. Uh, (laughs) um, So, uh, yeah. Okay. Now I want to transition to this next piece because this is really important as we, as we kind of begin to set up. Okay. I'm going to give a caveat here i realize when it comes to his, the political history and the way kings and nations uh worked and grew and you know had military campaigns and things like that that fascinates me and i realized some others that bores to tears okay so i want to try to respect that the people that get really bored by this kind of thing and go uh, at a somewhat quicker clip uh, through this next through the second half here but it's really important and because here's a couple of things. The blanks that I've given you on the back are mostly, not totally, but mostly are important names that I want you to hear and write down. Names of kingdoms, but also names of like kings and, and things like that, that I want you to kind of hear and get sort of used to. Um, and some of them are kings in the past and things like that. But what I want you to see is how the fall of Israel, first of all, how Israel is a total gift of God's sovereignty. uh, And there's, I don't see any other explanation for them. And then the other is that their, their fall coincides with some stuff that God is doing broadly in the political landscape. So uh, I want you to kind of keep that in your mind now on your worksheet. You might want to jot this down just somewhere near this section that the period of the Judges was, uh, just a reminder, from about 1360, roughly, to 1084 B.C. 1360, roughly, to 1084 B.C. That's about the period of the Judges in Israel, okay? Because some of the years are going to fall within that, so just, just remember that. Um, then remember also that at about 1051 um Saul takes the throne 1011 David takes the throne and 971 Solomon takes the throne so just sort of remember those those years as we go through cuz those are those are pretty important Solomon dies in about 931 so Solomon's dead in 931 so the period now and now let's let's take a mental picture of the map this i, I hope this is helpful but I, I think it should be um just so you'll keep in mind where these locations are so you've got israel i don't think you can see my cursor but um but you've got israel over here by the Mediterranean oh you can okay good you've got israel over here by the mediterranean sea all right you all know where egypt is down here in the south you have got israel up here um up here in the area of damascus you have what essentially is the Aramean states or Aram. So it's right up here, okay? Just to the north of Israel, all right? Then way up here to the north and east of Aram and Israel, you have Assyria. Just to the south of them, you have Babylonia, which their capital city is Babylon. You all know that. And then, and you've heard the city of Nineveh too, that's in Assyria. So Assyria up here, Babylonia down here, and Medea all the way over here on the, on the right, on the far east. Okay. So you kind of got that mental picture. We can come back to this map if you need it, if, if we need to in just a minute. We have Israel, Aram or Damascus, Egypt down here in the south, Assyria, Babylonia, and Medea. Um, now, so the period that we're talking about, From Solomon's death, 931 BC, all the way through the fall of Samaria, which is 722. Samaria is the capital of the Northern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom of Israel. They have their capital at Samaria. Judah, the Southern Kingdom, their capital is Jerusalem, right? Northern Kingdom, capital, Samaria. So in 722... Samaria is going to fall. They're going to be conquered. The northern kingdom is going to be wiped off the map virtually entirely by the kingdom of Assyria. And this time period between 931 when Solomon dies to 722 when the northern kingdom is finally wiped off the map. um, That time period is dominated by this, I mean, rise of Assyria to dominance in the Near East. Assyria rides a rocket of power all the way up during that time to where they become milita- militarily incredibly strong. And basically, no one can defeat them, okay? And so they're, they're going to finally walk in, and they're going to conquer the northern kingdom. So 931 to 722 is mainly what the time period we're concerned with uh, right now that we're heading into. We're going to spend some time in that time period for the next probably several months um and then and then Assyria is eventually going to come in, in 722 and conquer them now Assyria the the irony here is that Assyria had been not much of anything to be honest with you not until just after the time of Abraham so from about 1748 to 1716 there was a king um named uh Shamshi-Adad I and he had some sort of a, a little bit of of uh, greatness, I guess you could say. But since then, only Shalmaneser won. He was the only one to really have any kind of political savvy. And he was in the period of the judges. So he was about 1274 to 1245. Assyria starts to have this king that's, you know, a, a pretty uh, powerful dude and starts to exhibit some form of, you know, political savvy. Um and to the point where they actually conquer Babylon, and Babylonia is—I mean—almost nothing during that point. They start grabbing up land around Assyria, and they start kind of building it a little bit. But he dies, and Assyria doesn't really maintain that until Tiglath Pileser the First comes along. Tiglath Pileser the First comes along in eleven fourteen. And he builds the new Assyrian Empire. And the new Assyrian Empire begins expanding its borders in every direction except the Southwest. Okay, you're going to see why in just a second, why this is, I think, really interesting. At least it's interesting to me. Okay, Uh, hopefully it's interesting to other people too. So Tiglath-Pileser I comes in and he catches the wind of Shalmaneser I and he sort of picks up where his, you know, predecessor, long since uh, dead, left off and he builds the new Assyrian Empire. And this is where they start to kind of get their feet underneath them and start to kind of get some momentum. But it's going to take hundreds of years before they ever get become a superpower. All right. So he starts expanding Tiglath-Pileser I starts expanding the borders of Assyria in every direction, except he cannot manage to get down to the south, uh, southwest. All right, so let's pause on Assyria for just a second. Let's go to the other side of Israel, and let's talk about Egypt. Egypt was almost nothing. As powerful as they were back in Moses' day, they became almost nothing for the rest of biblical history. I mean, um, they had some successful dynasties and things like this, but then lost their power and the twenty uh, second dynasty, so right around nine forty, so right before the fall of uh, of Solomon, right before Solomon's death, about eleven years or so before Solomon's death, um, the, uh, Shishak the first takes over, and he begins to exercise influence, and he begins to spread up into the the ancient areas, the the land of Israel. Okay, so he starts to kind of. Stretches fingers out all the way up through 919. Okay. Now, they, uh, he sends his general, Zerah, up into Judah. And we're going to read about this later on. But King Asa of Judah squashes him, defeats him in battle. And that is virtually the end of any dominance of Egypt at all. So Egypt is almost nothing at that point. Asa uh, is the king over Judah. Zerah, the general... Uh, For Shishak one comes up through the land and they have a skirmish and Egypt is gone. They don't really exhibit any any real control anyway uh, from that moment on. okay, so that's Egypt. All right. Now we get the Aramean states. You remember, those are the ones just north of Israel. That's Damascus. It's right there on the uh, northern border of Israel. This is like a hodgepodge of nobodies, essentially. Almost. It's these sort of uh, northern migrants that came up through there. They mixed with some people that were already living in the area. They they became known as the area of Aram, but they're sort of these independent little tribal, you know, uh, chieftains. They're not really one cohesive unit at all. But for whatever reason, due to God's providence, at about the time where... Uh, the ju- the period of the judges is coming to a close. Saul is beginning to take uh, is, is or they're beginning to establish a king in Israel. Tiglath Pileser one starts expanding that direction. What is he doing? Well, remember if you can just imagine all the way back to when we first started this whole thing, we talked about the Fertile Crescent. And the area of Mesopotamia, that green region that goes all the way up through the area and comes down through the land of Israel and goes all the way down to Egypt. That's a really important uh, territory. And so what is, what is Tiglath-Pileser doing? He's obviously got control of Assyria. He's got control of Babylon, thanks to his predecessor. He's now trying to move down, and he knows Egypt is not much. So he's trying to move down, and he's trying to take control of the rest of the area as he spreads his territory out. For whatever reason, due to the providence of God is the only thing that I can think, the Aramean states band together in this like little just sort of wall and form a wall across the top of Israel and Tiglath-Pileser can't get past them to conquer anything to the south. And so he just stays up there in Assyria and he's just sort of landlocked. He can't really move any further because of them. Then Saul and David begin to take over, and they start to expand their the borders of. Well, really, mostly David starts to expand the borders of Israel up to the north. Hamath, Damascus, and Zoba all fall under his all fall under David's conquering. And all of a sudden, now David has control of the land, and Assyria can't obviously can't match David's strength and power. Okay, so Hamath, Damascus, and Zoba. Um, are areas just north of Galilee that were really important to David and Saul and were areas under their, under their control and reign. And so by the time they take control, basically God, it, it, if you want a theological explanation, as far as I can see, uh, God uses the Aramean states to just stop Assyria in its tracks while Israel builds its kingdom into prominence. And once they do, uh, Assyria can't come that direction. So the Aramean states are really important for that, but they have virtually no political clout whatsoever, and and their their contribution to history is not political. They don't they don't ever establish this sort of dominance in terms of like military or anything like that. Their their prom their claim to fame, if you want to say it that way, is cultural. The Aramaic language comes from this area, and it maintained a stronghold, the Aramaic language maintained a stronghold in that Near Eastern world so that by the time of Christ, the common language in that region that he grew up in would have been Aramaic. Um, So for, you know, everything we can tell, Christ's common language, what they would have spoken back then would have been Aramaic, a language that not a whole lot of people know much about uh, nowadays. It's, it's more or less lost. So even though Koine Greek was very common throughout the land, um, the Aramaic language uh, held strong in that little area thanks to Aram. So there you go. Uh, that's just a little tidbit of FYI. Okay, so now we come back to Babylonia, which remember over uh, toward the east of our map is just south of, um, of Assyria. Um, and Assyria had kind of slapped them into submission and Babylon has been in the dark ages for centuries by this point. And they're in this really long process of waking up from these so-called dark ages for them. And so a people known as the Seelands dynasty um, extend their influence by making an alliance with Medea. Remember Medea is out to the east, even of Babylon. So, that big area over there, they make a kind of an alliance with Medea, and they come to inhabit um, that area of Babylon, and they started to form the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and so we're going to see that empire come to fruition um, during it uh, at at some point, and they're going to be the ones that move in, conquer Assyria, and move in and actually take control of the southern kingdom of Judah, which will happen in about uh, six, uh, 587 BC. We'll get to that much later, but, um, Babylon. So Babylon is in this long period of rising up. So here, here's the point of all this, what you can see, or what, what I think it, it, it to me seems to be relatively obvious is, is what the Lord is doing is he's held off any political dominance or any military dominance from the other countries to establish Israel in the land. That is an anomaly that I defy anyone to explain to me other than the Lord's providence. How does, and we've talked about this a number of times, how does a group of slave children move across the desert for 40 years, have leave with the possessions of Egypt, walk into prime real estate, and occupy it? How does that happen? How does that happen other than the Lord said, this is what you're going to do? And not only that, but while they did that, there were no, no nations in the area, none, that had any kind of military prominence. We always hear the, the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum, right? When uh, one, right now, in our current political landscape, geopolitical politics here, America is the dominant player in the region, right, in the, in the world. Well, there's people that want to be our friends because we have military power, and then there's people that are our, that want to be our enemies because we have military power. But if if America was to go down the tubes, someone else, some other nation, would take over control. Right? I mean, some some other nation would become the most powerful nation in the world, and everybody would be clamoring either to be their enemy or to be their friend. What we have in Israel walking into. The Levant area, that 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 ancient Near Eastern area, is no one in control. I mean, when in world history has that really ever happened? So they walk in and take control. And of course, when they walk in, they're still more or less peasants to a degree in a land that they didn't, you know, with vineyards they didn't plant, so to speak. And so the Lord holds off any military dominance from any country for hundreds of years until David comes along and and is established. And then, as soon as Solomon falls, there's created a vacuum, and all of a sudden you've got Assyria springing up, rising like a rocket out of nowhere to gain dominance again. So if you look at the history of what's taking place here, to me, and the only explanation is that this is the Lord's providence. It's it's his doing. And, and and I've said a number of times that the Lord rules history, and he is bringing about its culmination in Christ. That's the point of the Bible. God rules history. He's bringing about its culmination in Christ. That is the point of the entire Bible. And so, you know, in that is the salvation of his people. In that is a, a lot of things. But that's essentially the picture here what god is doing politically he rules history he's bringing about its culmination in christ and you can see that happening right on the pages of scripture you just have to kind of look at at the political landscape it's, it's right there in front of us questions
1: yeah, hey mike I have, yeah go, Sean. Uh, just a couple of questions so yeah uh first of all this is like really interesting so I really appreciate this Good, yeah. um uh, but just so first one that's just kind of a minor thing. Just makes me sure when you say the Aramean states and then later talk about, you know, Hamath, Damascus and Zobah, those are the Aramean states, right? Yes. Are they? Different? Yes. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. By that. And then and yes. then you were saying, you know, describing how they kind of gained influence so much so that it kind of changed the language. And, and like in and by Jesus time, that was the common language. Yeah, in that area. So, why was yeah. why was the New Testament recorded in Greek? Yeah, good
0: question. Is it to make yeah. it
1: broader? Or, I don't know. Yeah,
0: that's exactly why. Um, the the so Koine Greek, uh, Alexander the Great comes in and installs Blake. Help me here. Attic Greek is is uh, well, he's not paying attention. Um, I, I believe uh, if I'm from right here, Alexander the Great, he may have installed Koine Greek in about. 300, my Greek professor is going to kill me, uh, but I think 300-ish BC, and Koine Greek takes over and becomes the uh, lingua franca of the world, of the known world at the time. But for one reason or another, the language of Aramaic held on in that little strip of land right down from the states of Aram all the way down to, you know, the end of, of Israel. So that leaves the Jews mostly speaking Aramaic. And um, so that it seems kind of a little bit strange, but Aramaic was even spoken a little bit in, in, um, in, in the old Testament, in the record of the old Testament, we have parts of the old Testament recorded in Aramaic. So, um, you know, um, for one reason or another, that little, that little area, mostly Aramaic. So there, in, in Jesus's day, you've got uh, Greek, Hebrew, which is mostly like a priestly language and mostly used in kind of like worship and things like that. But everybody would have known it. Most every Jew would have been able to speak it. You have, uh, so you have Greek, you have Hebrew, and you have Aramaic. And if you, if you remember in Acts... Paul is captured, so the the Romans would have spoken Greek and wouldn't have spoken Aramaic at all, most of them, probably all of them. They certainly wouldn't have spoken Hebrew. You'll remember that Paul is captured, and he wants to make an appeal to the Jews that are present, and he turns around and he speaks to them in Hebrew, and the, the Roman soldiers have no idea what's going on because he's speaking to them in Hebrew, a language they know that the, he knows the Romans don't know. So uh, there's three solid languages that are in that area at the time, but uh, Greek is by far the most prominent that would be most widely read in, in the known world. Everybody would have pretty much had to know Greek. Uh, I mean, in a similar way, you find that with English to, to some extent, you travel to China and the airports, you're gonna see English on the signs as well, you know. So a little bit like that.
1: Yeah. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, absolutely.
1: Other questions, so Michael? Yeah. In Isaiah thirty-six, uh-huh. where you get the Hezekiah, the Syrians coming in, and yes. they they ask they ask them to to speak in Aramaic but then it says the address is in the language of Judah. So we assume language of Judah means Hebrew there.
0: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably what it's going to be. I'd have to look, uh, see what maybe some other people say, but I'm pretty sure that would be, that would be Hebrew.
2: Well, Pontius Pilate wrote the title King of the Jews in Aramaic, Hebrew
0: and Greek. That's right. He did. Yep. And remember, uh, there's another fascinating thing with that, too, because he writes the title, the king of the Jews above him and that what goes above them on the cross is the charge. And he writes the king of the Jews and the the Jews protest. It should say he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. (laughs) So instead of the charge being up there, it's his title is up there. (laughs) Uh, again, the Lord rules history and brings about its culmination in Christ. There you
2: go. Well, one reason that the language held on is that the Aramaeans were the greatest land traders of all time. So Mm -hmm. commerce Mm
0: -hmm. became
2: the language of commerce. And you you think about English today is is the language of commerce around the world. It's also used for uh, air traffic controllers around the world.
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Interesting. Air traffic controllers. And and you mentioned Aramaic
2: used in some portions of the Bible, particularly a portion of Daniel, I think is. Is there any particular reason that the substantial portion of Daniel is in Aramaic? Um, uh,
0: My gut tells me that there's probably going to be some later, uh, either later translations and things like that that make it into the manuscript, but I can't remember off the top of my head exactly why.
2: I was told in seminaries it's because uh, when he spoke about the Gentiles, he wrote in Aramaic. Mm. When he talked about the Jews, he spoke, he wrote it in Hebrew.
0: Maybe so. I don't know. But it, but it is. It's a substantial portion of Daniel. And then you, you may hear from time to time the word uh, targums, which is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, the targums. Any other questions?
2: Just a comment. The yeah. uh, the Levites the Levites were spread throughout Israel. They were, and they they were in the cities of refuge, and their their task was to teach the word of God by the way they lived and by the way yes. they talked. Yeah, and they yeah. failed to do that because of the people didn't know the scripture. But that that's, that's right. what they were to do, and. God says that we are to be a kingdom of priests and kings. So we are to know the scripture. So wherever we go, we are to teach by the way we live and by what we say. Mm-hmm. And we influence the culture around us. Yep. But it's, a, it's an overflow of our life is to do that. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yep.
0: Okay. Anything else? Other questions?
2: Should I be the, the next great TikTok influencer? <laughs>
0: uh, I'm not entirely sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> the uh, well Forbes um when they listed the most wealthy 10 of them were TikTok
1: influencers. Okay. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, then, uh, I, I don't know how to answer that question.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm not sure what is required to be a TikTok influencer. <laughs> Wherever God puts you, you use it. You know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Words to live by, including TikTok influencing, I suppose. Um, all right. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for a time together. Together, to talk about Your Word, to think about um, all of the things going on in the biblical world, to wrestle with questions we do- we still have that we don't understand, and uh, to think through things that are really confusing. But all of it gets us to the same conclusion every same single time. It seems is that you uh, you you continue to amaze us as you have crafted history with intention and purpose, uh, as if the, the hearts of Kings were rivers in your hands that you turn them whichever way you wanted to. And, um, and we see that all of this is building to the culmination of Christ and it, it, it should cause us, I hope it does. Um, and we ask that you would, you would move our hearts so that it does cause us to marvel at the way you move, and the way you work, and, and what you've done in uh, in history. And all of this seems to give us the uh, abundant assurance that there is nothing going on in our lives that, that would be beyond your reach, or your scope, or your knowledge, or your decree. And we can trust, then, that you have our salvation, surely in the palm of your hand, if you have all of this in the palm of your hand as well. So we are grateful for that. And uh, I pray that 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 would give us the abundance of confidence to go forward into our lives every day um, in worship, admiration to you, uh, in a desire to know more of you and more of your wondrous works in the past so that we may stand on them as a foundation to trust that our future is secure. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.